0: When Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, he learned the power and the love of God. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we learn lessons from the Exodus and God's great rescue. We are in episode 57 of our study, Exodus, God's Great Rescue. And um, we are looking at things that go in the uh, the tent of meeting, the, the Holy of Holies, the, the tabernacle, and then the whole entire enclosure, which is the, the tent um, that goes around the tabernacle. And all of this stuff is described by God, and it is um, uh, Im, uh, important to him that it's followed very well, and so um, the Israelites do. So there's going to be some more components that are going to be put in this whole area and then we talk about who builds the components and we kind of go through them a second time. Um, and then uh, we, we talk about it a, a little bit. There's a couple more narratives, but um, that's kind of where we are in Exodus. We're actually in Exodus, I think chapter 27 uh, today. Let me look here. Yeah, we're in Exodus 27. Um, we left off yesterday about um, the whole entire frame that, that gets built and uh, the curtains and all that sort of thing of the of the of the temple, and I think I had a picture of it here somewhere. Um, sorry, yeah. Uh, here's here's a picture of of the the tabernacle and the courtyard and the, the tents around the tabernacle. Um, so the the larger and this ends up becoming kind of the footprint for the. Uh, for, for the temple that gets built in Jerusalem. So even back here at the time of uh, Moses, we kind of get a foretaste of what's about to come. Anyway, so I'm just going to go ahead and get into Exodus 27 and see where it takes us. So we're going to look at Exodus 27, beginning at verse 1. Build an altar of acacia wood, three cubits high. It is to be square, five cubits long, and five cubits wide. Make a horn at each of the four corners, so that the horns and the altar are of one piece. And overlay the altar with bronze. Make all its utensils of bronze, its pots to remove the ashes and its shovels, sprinkling bowls, meat forks, and fire pans. Make a grating for it, a bronze network, and make a bronze ring at each of the four corners of the network. Put it under the ledge of the altar, so that it is halfway up the altar make poles of acacia wood for the altar and overlay them with bronze the poles are to be inserted into the ring so they will be on two sides of the altar when it's carried make the altar hollow out of boards it is to be made just as you were shown on the mountain so again we see from previously that god is giving moses specific instructions as to what this whole thing is going to look like Now this is called the altar of burnt offering. Uh, This is where they would sacrifice lambs, goats, pigeons, uh, doves, quails, um, all the things that get sacrificed to God happen on this altar. And um, there are four corners of each of the altars. And um, as you can see, it's all supposed to be made of one piece. and all the, all the meat forks and the fire pens and the shovels and sprinkling bowls, all of this stuff, God gives uh, incredible dis- dis- uh, direction as to what it's going to look like. And so there is this altar um, that is there um, made out of bronze. Of course, bronze is good. Uh, it's kind of different from gold. Gold uh, has a lower heating point or a melting point, so you wouldn't want to make it out of gold. But you could make it out of bronze because bronze can be heated up and still have, like you could you could sacrifice an altar on the altar of bronze, an animal, and it wouldn't destroy the altar. So that's, and we are in the bronze era, so making it out of bronze is, is not a bad idea. Uh, so let's continue on because this is the courtyard. Make a courtyard for the tabernacle. The south side shall be a hundred cubits long and is to have curtains of finely twisted linen with 20 posts and 20 bronze bases, and with silver hooks and bands on the posts. The north side shall also be a 100 cubits long and is to have curtains, with 20 posts and 20 bronze bases, with silver hooks and bands on the post. The west end of the courtyard shall be 50 cubits wide and have curtains with 10 posts and 10 bases. On the east side, towards the sunrise, the courtyard shall also be 50 cubits wide Curtains fifteen cubits high, long, are to be on one side of the entrance with three posts and three bases. And curtains fifteen cubits long are to be on the other side with three posts and three basins. Verse sixteen For the entrance to the courtyard, provide a curtain twenty cubits long of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and finely twisted linen, the work of an embroiderer with four posts and four bases. All of the posts around the courtyard are to have silver bands and hooks and bronze bases. The courtyard shall be 100 cubits long and 50 cubits wide with curtains of finely twisted lemon five cubits high and with bronze bases. All of the other articles used in the service of the tabernacle, whatever their function, including all the tent pegs for it, and those for the courtyard are to be of bronze. So as you can see, there's a lot of bronze, there's a lot of acacia wood, there's lots of fine linens that are all there. Now, remember, this, this whole thing has to be packed up and ready to go at a moment's notice. And this allows the Israelites to be very nomadic. They don't know when God's going to say, okay, we're going to pack up everything and we're going to move. It reminds me a little bit of the uh, TV show MASH, Mobile uh, mobile. In a strategic hospital, mobile army strategic hospital, MASH uh, from the 70s. And uh, they would have this whole, the tents, and they would have all the surgical equipment and all that. And this whole entire thing could be torn down, put on transport, and moved to a different location, and then rebuilt again. And whenever they do that, of course, it causes all sorts of disruption. But Uh, You want to be close enough to the front line where you can where you can provide support to the soldiers on the front line, but you uh, don't want to be so close to the front line where you're getting lobbies lobs of rockets coming into the strategic hospital, and so uh, that hospital would have to be uh, strategically located and portable, and the same thing is true with this uh, this whole entire the courtyard, the tabernacle, and all the things that go into it. Now, you'll notice that everything that is large uh, has to be able to be rolled up and carried by a person or perhaps two persons. I'm guessing that each of these tents, uh, I'm not each of the tents, but each of the wall units that are are five cubits, whatever, and five cubits, these that get folded up probably can be carried by one person. But the, uh, the altar of sacrifice, that has to be carried by two people. The, we saw that the, the table of presence has to be carried by two people. Obviously, the Ark of the Covenant has to be carried by two people. And so God is really thinking ahead as far as what the design of this whole thing is so that it could be on a moment's notice moved. Uh, and, there are, and this happens all throughout Israelites' history for 40 years until they finally get to the Promised Land uh, where they build a final temple. Um, so this, uh, this is God's design and the people of Israel follow this design, uh, to the letter, to the T. Um, and there's a lot of bronze. There's a lot of gold. There's a lot of, um, stuff. Now, um, I think it's interesting, like who would carry all this stuff? And you would think it'd probably be, I'm guessing it would be single men, <laughs> Right? If you're married and you have a family and you're moving around from place to place, then you've got to make sure that your wife and your children and all your supplies move from point A to point B. If you're a young child, you're probably not strong enough yet to carry all this stuff. Um, and so you're probably looking at men that are past the age where they have some strength on them, but before the age where they're perhaps married. So these are probably uh, prepubescent, like mildly prepubescent or maybe pubescent-ish men. So this is probably junior high kids. I mean, this is probably who we're looking at because once they get out of junior high, what we call junior high, which is, uh, let's see, that would be 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. So that would be 12, 13, 14 years old. You know, once they get to 15 or 16, then they're probably going to get married and they're probably going to start having a family and then they have to take care of the family, although they still might be with their, their you know, parents at that point. Um, you know, the, the, Even though uh, Israelite is very uh, you know, large and tribal, there's still a lot of clannish stuff going on. So you probably would still be with your mom and dad, even though that you're married and even though you're just having grandkids for, for your mom and dad, right? Um, and so there was probably a lot of pressure from mom and dad to get married and have grandkids, so that they could have grandkids. Because life expectancy back then was probably, I mean, if you made it into your thirties, you probably went to fifty or sixty. Um, even in the Psalms, it says that uh, you know seventy, eighty years old is is a is a typical age for you know people to make it to that to that age. Um, so so you might have grandkids. You might even have great grandkids. Uh, it's today's generation that, uh, you know, isn't getting married until their late 20s, early 30s, and then having grandkids. So by the time you have two generations, you're talking about being in your 80s before you see, uh, you know, if you have the potential of great-grandchildren. Um, you know, you're, for me, probably late 80s, early 90s, um, something like that. My granddaughter's six. I'm 60. So, yeah, probably something like that. Anyway. Um, how did we get off on that tangent? I have no idea. Except that uh, I was just curious as to, like, who would be, um, you know, carrying all this stuff around. I just, I find that fascinating. Uh, I'm not entirely sure who would be carrying it around. But, because it wouldn't be older men. They, they, they're they not strong enough. Uh, it wouldn't be men with families, because they got to take care of their families. It has to be young men before families. Um, so that's who it is. And so... Um, there is a uh, there is a precedent even in the temple then that these you know that these young men would then serve in the temple or serve in the courtyard or serve with the sacrifices or I something. You'd have priests, and then you'd have young men serving, uh, you know, in the temple. Uh, this ends up becoming for Protestantism. Uh, we have a lot of people that serve on Sunday morning uh, pre COVID. You know, acolytes. Uh, ushers, um, all those kind of things that people can serve and help out on Sunday morning. But it doesn't have to be those things. It could be almost anything. Um, It's great to serve God in a myriad number of ways, um, particularly on Sunday morning. Um, All right. So let's continue reading and see what happens. So this is beginning with verse 20 of Exodus 27. Command the Israelites to bring you clear oil of pressed olives for the light, so that the lamps may be kept burning. In the tent of meeting, outside the curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant Law, Aaron and his sons are to keep the lamps burning before the Lord from evening till morning. This is to be a lasting ordinance among the Israelites for generations to come. Wow. So this lampstand that represents light, the menorah, Uh, Bring clear oil of pressed olives. So you probably didn't know this, but if you take olives and you press them, you get olive oil. We know that. We've seen that. But that olive oil can be used to burn lamps. Have you ever tried that experiment? Have you ever put a wick uh, in olive oil and lit the wick to see how that burns uh, and how brightly that burns? It probably doesn't burn very brightly at all, (laughs) Uh, I don't think there's a lot of um, energy in olive oil, but there's enough in there to be able to burn lights uh, in the menorah. Uh, After olive oil, um, we moved to whale oil, which was in the 1700s, 1800s. Everything was done by whale oil. And then uh, we decided that whale oil wasn't good. And so we moved over to um, kerosene, and uh, then the guy who figured out how to process kerosene in a phenomenally good way was John D. Rockefeller, who created Standard Oil, and um, the whole purpose of Standard Oil was to create kerosene. Uh, and then, of course, the automobile came on the scene, and John D. Rockefeller fell into being able to provide gasoline for these gasoline engines, and then the rest is history, and he became the richest man probably after Solomon and and uh, that's John D. Rockefeller, who still has a foundation called the Rockefeller Foundation. There's Rockefeller Plaza in New York City, um, all because of light, right? So you have oil light, and then you have whale blubber, and then you have kerosene. And of course, now we have electricity, um, which is how we produce this show right here. It's from electricity, but it's all the same idea. There's energy stored in this stuff. It's amazing. Um, and this is to be in the tent of meeting outside the curtains that shields the Ark of the Covenant. Um, they keep the lamp burning before the Lord from evening till morning. So this is one of the roles now that God gives to the priesthood. Remember, Aaron is in the line of the priesthood. Aaron and his sons keep the lamps. So the people provide the oil, the clear oil of pressed olives. These go in the little lamp stand. And then every night, Aaron or his sons keeps the the inside the tent of meeting, the, the, but outside of the Ark of the Covenant in that area, which is mostly just the menorah and the, the, uh, the bread and the flagons and all that, the table of presence, that is to be lit from um, from sunset until sunrise or from evening until morning. And this is a lasting ordinance among the Israelites for the generations to come. Now, what's interesting is if you go into many, many, well, if you go into a Roman Catholic church, if you go into a a Church of England church, if you go into a traditional traditional, uh, Lutheran church, a lot of churches, they'll have a thing that's called the eternal candle or the eternal flame. And typically what it is, is a candle that has light burning and... um, It typically hangs from the ceiling of of a sanctuary and that light burns all the time. It's the eternal candle. It's the eternal light to be vigilant for when Christ returns. If you remember, he said, keep your lamp lit and be vigilant so when I come back. And so that whole entire uh, eternal candle is a reminder that Jesus could come back at any time. And so we keep that lamp lit. So when I was an acolyte uh, at our church that I grew up in, um, they had an eternal it had an eternal flame. Now, some of these eternal candles are actually um, electric, and so they're you can turn them on and off, although a lot of them are wired so that they're always on. It's like they can never be turned off unless there's, unless there's a power surge, and then it gets turned off. And that's kind of cool, right, because then you don't have to get up on a ladder and get that candle and fill it up again with oil and then put the wick in it and relight it. Um, in, uh, in our <laughs> church, um, they told us that this light, this lamp, because our church was built in I think 68 or something like that, the huge sanctuary, uh, and we were told as acolytes that that eternal candle had been going ever since the church was built. It was the same flame that was going out. Are going in this candle. And so, but there were times when that candle had to be lowered and then you had to, you know, redo it. Um, and so I was there once with the pastor and he lowered the candle and then uh, he blew out the flame and put more oil in and lit it again. I wait, what about the eternal candle? He goes, well, it's kind of eternal. <laughs> so it was I thought that they had, you know, like, they would take the flame and put it on something, and then they would fill it up, and then put the flame back, or something like that. But that's just too much work. And there really is no uh, f- uh, other than it's an eternal flame that you know. For the vigilance of Christ, uh, there it, it's okay if that flame goes out, and it's probably okay if it's an electric flame. Which is, I look for things like this when I'm in other Lutheran churches and see, is it an oil flame, or is it an electric flame, or is it a gas flame, and how do they, how do you keep it lit, and all those sort of things. Um, You could do a gas flame. The problem with the gas flame, of course, if it goes out, then you have gas leaking into your sanctuary. Unless you have a sophisticated system that if if the flame goes out, that it turns off the gas, but that adds weight and bulk to this thing. The easiest one, of course, is to just have oil that's in the eternal candle that you just keep the oil. Actually, the easiest would be just to have an electric one that stays on all the time unless there's a power outage. Although, in today's world, you could... I didn't think about this, but you could put an LED bulb in there with a battery backup. Uh, And so even if the power went out, um, you'd have this LED candle, the eternal flame that's going all the time. Um, But here in the Old Testament, it didn't have to burn 24 hours a day. Uh, It only had to burn from sunset to sunrise. And so that was the command now from Moses to Aaron is to keep this thing lit So that you can see the table of presence and you can be in that room in the tent of meeting um, all the time. So um, that is now where Aaron uh, comes into the picture and the priesthood kind of comes into the picture. Um, And again, this whole thing is mobile because that has to be able to be moved. And so all the poles, all the stands of the poles, all the everything. And as I've mentioned before, uh, we went and actually saw one of these that was in Houston, Texas. They actually uh, set up the whole thing. Uh, they had tours. I think it took, to go through the whole thing, I think it took a half an hour. Maybe it took an hour. I can't remember. But they they had tours, regular tours. There might be a tour at 8 o'clock in the morning and then at 9 o'clock in the morning and then 10 o'clock. And you could sign up for the tour and you would come and you'd, uh, you know, you know, learn some information. Then you went in and you actually, somebody walked you around and showed you all of this stuff. And it was really, really, really cool. And I've thought about uh, at our particular congregation, we do have a place, um, at Christ in Vale where we could, if we wanted to recreate this whole thing and then do tours of it to people. I mean, we could do, um, People go, you know, driving to a colossal cave, you know, to do their cave thing. You know, if you're a tourist and you're going to colossal cave and you said, hey, see the tabernacle, that type of thing, I think people probably would pull off and come and take a look at the tabernacle. I think they'd be, I think it'd be kind of cool. Um, It looks like it's 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 by uh, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90. So it's a hundred. It's about two hundred feet by hundred feet. So it's not that huge. It's uh, it's twenty twenty thousand square feet. Is that what it is? Um, so you could you could actually put this. It's about a half an acre, right? Forty three thousand five hundred sixty square foot in an acre. So it's about a half an acre of land that you'd have to level off and put gravel down and build this thing. But uh, and of course the amount of materials on this thing just. Would be an incredible amount of materials, but it would be stunning. I mean, it would be something so cool to see and to build, um, and particularly the uh, the, uh, the tent of meeting and the ark of the covenants and all that. I mean, if you could, if you could build all that stuff to scale, even if it was just painted gold, right? Um, they have now gold paint that's really bright and it looks almost like gold. I mean, I think bronze paint, gold paint, and all this, you could you could actually create something that was pretty spectacular. All right. Um, so maybe that'll happen at some point. Who knows? Um, it would be fun to see it. All right. So I think we'll leave it there. Um, we're, we've been introduced to Aaron and the priesthood now. We've now seen the whole entire courtyard. Uh, so now we get the basic design of this thing. Um, and uh, But there's some more, there was some more stuff. So we'll get into that when we get into it tomorrow. So uh, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Gracious God, thank you for the beauty of this day. Thank you for our time together. Uh, Keep us safe uh, until we meet again. In Jesus' name, amen.